Before we begin our main event, a brief reminder that Historically Thinking is now on Patreon. When you become a member of the Historically Thinking Common Room on Patreon, you not only support the podcast's weekly operations, from web hosting to scheduling to audio editing, you also enable us to do more in the future. Benefits that you'll receive as a Common Room member include a special weekly podcast, podcasts dropped in advance when possible, special events online and in the future live, input on topics, guests, and questions, competitions and prizes, and more. We will continue to produce our regular podcasts, which will still be available for free on Mondays in all your regular podcast feeds. We hope you'll enjoy being part of the Historically Thinking Common Room at Patreon. Just go to Patreon and search for Historically Thinking. Welcome to Historically Thinking, a podcast that's not only about the past and all its complexity, but also about how historians write history and how everyone can think about it. For more information about this or any episode, go to historicallythinking.org, where you can also sign up for our twice-a-month newsletter. Hello, Britain in the 1840s should have been, observed Simon Heffer, a time of great social improvement. Instead, it was a country that was beset by poverty, unrest, assassination attempts on young Queen Victoria and her prime minister, and fears of revolution. Yet just 40 years later, it was as if none of that had ever happened. It had become a prosperous and progressive nation, transformed by advances not only in industrialization, but also in politics, science, religion, and education. That Britain had become such a society was not an accident, but the result of intelligent and directed purpose. The story of that purpose and what it wrought is the subject of Heffer's book, High Minds, The Victorians and the Birth of Modern Britain. It is an investigation not simply of political, social, or cultural change, but of a change of mind, and by which I mean not merely changing ideas like changing clothes from season to season, but of changing the way things are seen. Simon Heffer is an eminent British journalist, essayist, historian, and author of numerous books, including Lives of Thomas Carlyle and Enoch Powell, and Histories of Victorian and Edwardian Britain, which will shortly extend themselves to 1939. Simon Heffer, welcome to Historically Thinking. Thank you very much, Al. So um, let's talk about first what you don't talk about. Um, one of my um, delightful Patreon supporters, um, Michael Kearney, asks, um, who paid for the birth of modern Britain? Um, and I believe he means to intimate that it was Ireland and the empire that paid for the birth of modern Britain. But you make it clear at the beginning that you're not going to talk about the empire or Ireland much beyond the potato blight. So could you sketch out why you made, why you made those, those boundaries? Well, there are two points there. First of all, I must entirely disagree with him that modern Britain was funded by the, either by the British empire or by the Irish. Uh, that is absolute rubbish. Um, we basically funded both. Uh, even though the East India Company was supposed to be uh, enormously wealthy, uh, we didn't really get we didn't really get any net gain from India. We, it was a it was a tremendous uh, jewel in the crown, as the phrase goes, of the empire. It was obviously a great country and a great civilization for us to claim we had control over. But the East India Company uh, enriched. Some people in the East India Company had also enriched an awful lot of Indian princes who made a fortune out of it. Uh, and um, we didn't really make a net gain from India. We founded schools and colleges for uh, the Indian population over there in most of the cities that we, uh, that we operated in. And, of course, uh, until 1857 or 58, after the Indian mutiny, 
we didn't have, as it were, an empire there. Uh, it was governed largely as a, an outpost of the East India Company. As for Ireland, um, we, uh, again, were net contributors to Ireland. Uh, and that remained so right up until um, uh, the Irish Free State was created in 1922. Uh, uh, although there were English landlords there, the return was incredibly poor. And from really from the time of the potato famine in the 1840s, um, the landlords who remained in business there were ones who had to invest quite heavily in their land because um, Ireland was not a very profitable agricultural community, which is why so many people of Irish descent now live in America, because they went there in huge quantities in the 1840s and quite often and usually made immense successes of their lives. Uh, and you know their descendants are still making immense successes of their lives. Um, why don't I deal with these things in the book? Uh, I was originally going to write one book, and it was going to be on the, 19, on, the on the reign of Queen Victoria. And <laughs> I got to 1880 <laughs> and had written a 900-page book. So we decided to stop there. Also, I do deal with empire in the successor volume, which is called The Age of Decadence, which... Uh, was published in America last year, paradoxically. Um, and I deal with Ireland at great length in that because Ireland really gets difficult for Britain after 1880. Um, the Fenian movement starts there in the 1860s, but has very little impact on Britain uh, until the, the real clamour for home rule starts in 1880. And I should say, by the way, for the avoidance of doubt, um, I'm that rare Englishman who believes that home rule was an entirely justified uh, um, project. And if I had been alive in the 1880s, I, like Mr. Gladstone, our Prime Minister at the time, would have supported Home Rule. But I do mention the potato famine because obviously it's crucially important to Ireland, but it was also crucially important to Britain. And it was crucially important to Britain because at the end of 1844, uh, when the Irish situation started to become desperate, uh, Gladstone, uh, who was then uh, a junior uh, minister in the uh, government of Sir Robert Peel and a conservative, he later became a liberal, said to Peel, if we don't scrap tariffs on imported uh, cereal products, we are going to starve the people of Ireland because they've got no potatoes and they can't afford to import bread. Now, I know it's popular. Indeed, I've had this conversation with some quite intelligent Americans to believe that we were quite keen on starving the Irish. Again, it's nothing of the sort. Uh, we were desperate to avoid a famine in Ireland uh, for the sake of humanity and for the sake of um, not having massive civil unrest there. And um, so we did, by January 1846, in the teeth of opposition from Beale's own party, repeal the Corn Laws. And this had a seismic event, not just on Ireland, which consequently did not starve, uh, but also on British free trade, um, also on trade in, in everything, in manufactured goods. And what paid for the British Empire, to answer the point you made earlier, or what paid for, for the birth of modern Britain, was the success of manufacturing industry in Britain, exporting to around the world, including to America, and to Europe and to places that were not in the British Empire from 1846 onwards. And the reason why this country, and I'm talking from England now, the reason why this country, Great Britain, was so commercially successful 
for 25 years after the repeal of the Corn Laws was that we had established a free trade nation. And it was the lack of that until 1846 that really was the cause of all our misery. Well, let's, we're going to get back to that and have you explain the Corn Laws, particularly, well, not even to an English audience sometimes. I believe it's a Someone has once said that no one can really understand the Corn Laws any more than they can understand the Schleswig-Holstein question. But I'm sure that's an exaggeration. Um, but let's talk about Dr. Arnold of Rugby, um, who I must confess, uh, I only read Tom Brown's School Days because I read George MacDonald Fraser's Flashman. Um, and Dr. Arnold of Rugby, you use in your prologue as an exemplar, a metaphor, uh, and an influence. Uh, so I think we should describe him because I want to keep on returning to him as a touchstone, as a way of of unpacking this 900-page volume on 40 years of, of, of Britain? Well, Dr. Arnold, uh, I start with him in the book because he was, to my mind, uh, an absolutely crucial and transitional figure in the history of England. Because, first of all, he modernised education through his school. And he set an example of education and civilization to the entire country. England in particular, not Scotland, which always had a better attitude to education, but England in the 1830s and 1840s educated hardly anybody. You had to be wealthy enough to go to a private school like rugby, uh, or you had to be lucky enough to live in one of the towns that had an old um, uh, endowed grammar school that did, in, that did educate very clever local boys. Uh, free of charge, to get an education. Girls were virtually uneducated. It was only in the 1850s that girls' schools really started up. And although the, the first woman's university started in 1846 in London, uh, the, the women who went there had had enlightened parents who'd employed governesses uh, who had educated them privately at home. So we were a land that was hopeless at developing the human resources of the country because we had all these people you know by the middle by the middle of the um 19th century there were about 20 million people in britain at the 1851 census and we educated a very small proportion of them and dr arnold set an example uh, that if you wanted a country really to thrive a society to thrive you had to educate it and this was an argument taken up by his son, Matthew Arnold, who in the 1860s wrote what I think is one of the most important books of the 19th century in England uh, called Culture and Anarchy. Uh, and it's, um, it's superscription in Latin that starts from the Vulgate of the Bible, uh, Estote ergo vos perfecti, go out and perfect yourselves. Uh, and again, that is, that's what Britain sought to do. Throughout the 1850s and 1860s, Arnold died in 1842. We are setting up schools. We're educating more and more boys. We start to educate girls. There's talk in the early 1860s of having some sort of state education system where the Church of England will provide more schools, where existing endowed establishments will take more people in to educate them so that we can maximise this human potential. We can put it to use. We can get away from the old traditional classical education where people went to school and only learned Latin and Greek and, and theology and start teaching people sciences and mathematics and 
trying to get the country to develop further. And that really was Arnold's direct or most direct and most significant impact on, on the society he left behind when he died in 1842. Well, let's talk about this pursuit of perfection. And let me quote you to yourself. You write, a constant theme in the writings of one of the period's greatest intellectuals, Matthew Arnold, and a notion shared by many educated people of the time pervades this book. It is that even if a state of human perfection was unattainable, its pursuit was perhaps the noblest enterprise a Christian soul, and in some cases non-Christian ones, could undertake. If that pursuit did not finish at the goal, it at least made everything better. What do you mean by this pursuit, this arresting idea, this pursuit of perfection? Well, again, it's about people trying to develop intellectual curiosity. It's about an idea that if you try and improve everybody's mind, society must get better. And you can either do it from the bottom up or from the top down. In a way, we did both at the same time by establishing uh, schools that were provided by the Church of England and eventually were provided by the, the government, by the state, and trying to get, from 1870, ensuring that there was a place for every child who wanted an education in this country or whose parents wanted him or her to be educated. And the idea is that there's a great world out there to be discovered and there are discoveries to be made and you're more likely to make them if you have been educated to do so than if you've been forced to leave school at um, five or six or never go to school and to go and work in a factory. I mean, it, you know, this country was a disgrace. In the 1840s, despite Lord Shaftesbury's early factory acts, we still had children aged eight or nine working full-time in factories. Um, and, you know, we're all told, quite rightly, how gruesome this, the conditions were for slaves working in uh, the plantations in America uh, in the antebellum period. Well, if you went into... Uh, a factory in Lancashire or Yorkshire, our cotton or wool factories, you would find children working 12 hours a day uh, being beaten regularly because they weren't working hard enough by overseers, uh, uh, getting horrible industrial diseases, not being fed properly, many of them dead by the age of 15 or 16. Uh, you know, I'm not saying that uh, that can exactly be compared with people who were sold into slavery, but frankly, it wasn't much better. And they were sent out to work by their parents uh, because the pittance that these children earned was was required in order to keep feeding them. Their parents had children, this is an age before contraception, and they literally couldn't afford to feed them. You know, nature intervened, and many children who were born didn't live beyond the age of about three or four weeks. But those who did live into, you know, into childhood beyond the age of five had to be fed and clothed. And this cost a fortune. So they were, they were taken out of school and consigned to, um, to work in these gruesome factories. And if they didn't live in an industrial area, they were sent out to work on the land. When, um, when education became compulsory, and this wasn't until 1902, so it's after the period of this book, but when it became compulsory, many families complained about their children having to go to school in September uh, because normally they'd be earning some money for the family by helping to get the harvest in, uh, you know, which started at the middle of August and lasted through until early October. So you know, these were old habits that died hard. And Matthew Arnold particularly had a vision of Britain 
that was a country that did educate its young, that did try to teach them that there was something other than the darkness and gruesomeness of industrial life or, you know, getting up at dawn if you lived in the countryside and going out and doing backbreaking work in fields at the age of eight or nine that, that lasted until sunset. And um, this, this was a vision that Britain eventually took up through a series of enlightened governments, mainly those run by the Liberal Party. Well, let's go to the um, 1840s. And we've already referred to it several times, and you've just given a, a description which will answer this question by David Bland, who who asks if this the Dickensian uh, view, this view of 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 harsh, uncaringness towards the poor, brutal without sympathy, is simply a stereotype, or does it approach the reality? And you're suggesting it really Dickens was a, a keen social observer, not a fantasist. Oh, Dickens wasn't a fantasist, uh, a fantasist at all. And Dickens himself, in the 1820s, worked in a blacking factory because his family suddenly fell on very hard times. He wrote a novel famously called Hard Times uh, in uh, the early 1850s that described some of this. No, I mean, sadly, it wasn't. And you've only got to look at the, f the figures for... Uh, the difference in the 1840s and 50s between life expectancy in an industrial area and life expectancy in a non-industrial area, and then refine it further to the life expectancy of the middle and upper classes with the life expectancy of the working classes. And you see exactly how hard things were, not just, as I say, the back-breaking nature of the work that people were expected to do from a very early age. And you know, one of the other measures of the uncivilized quality of this country was that until 1845, I think it was, we allowed women to work down coal mines. Uh, you know, women who were pregnant would go down coal mines. They would, you know, they would strip to the waist because these places were 110 degrees Fahrenheit when they got down there. And you know, this scandalized uh, a very prim and proper establishment who weren't aware of what went on. And this is the big problem about early Victorian Britain and the, 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 the Britain that preceded it after the Napoleonic Wars, was that the people who made the rules, the people who made the laws, and there was a very small electorate and a very an even smaller ruling class in this country, they mostly didn't have a clue what working conditions were really like. They just said to themselves, the poor are very lucky to have jobs and uh, they're very lucky that they're actually working and that they're not starving to death. I mean, it was a very hard, unsympathetic society. I don't think Britain was remotely unique in that respect, by the way. I think you can find uh, equivalents to that in America. You can find equivalents to it in most European countries at the time. And, um, you know, it really was only a notch above slavery. Uh, you know, like slaves, you had to work long and hard. Like slaves, you were beaten if you didn't work long and hard. Uh, you had virtually no freedom. Uh, you couldn't afford to go anywhere. You couldn't afford to... There was no recreation. Life was about... was relentlessly about work. And so that's what the social reformers wanted to change. They wanted to try and develop the potential that people had. Because, you know, the idea that just because you had left... either had never been to school or been made to leave school after a basic education where you'd just been taught to read and write at the age of eight or nine didn't mean you weren't necessarily, you know, potentially brilliant. And it was, you know, we had to exploit those human resources. I mean, to an extent, all advanced societies in the world today are still trying to do that. 
you know, I know how poor many of our schools are in Britain. I know how poor many of your public schools are in America. And we have this great human potential of all races and all classes and all creeds, and we don't properly develop it. Uh, people who, uh, listeners who remember my conversation with Jonathan Rose about his superb book, The Intellectual Life of the Engl English, British Working Class, British Working Class, uh, will remember Joseph Wright, who started as a bobbin boy at seven, only learned to read the newspaper when he was 14, ended up being J.R.R. Tolkien's uh, professor of philology at Oxford. Um, but that he was otherwise was one of those people that would have been left like, um, like cinders by the side of the railway. I mean, he yeah. would just been thrown out and, and consumed. And as the 19th century went on, as the story you just told represents, you know, some people managed to escape from that. There were more opportunities. As British society became wealthier with the, with the rise of free trade, it was easier and easier to provide educational opportunities for them. But, you know, many of your listeners will have, will have read Thomas Hardy's novel, novel Jude the Obscure. You know, that is set in the uh, 1880s, 1890s. And here's a very bright man who tries to get to Oxford, and he can't. Uh, and, you know, the sort of people who did, from very humble origins, get to a great university uh, were few and far between. I'm sure it's the same getting into an Ivy League university in America in that age. Uh, you know, unless you had um, money behind you, it was extraordinarily difficult to do it. And, yeah. um, and, and in fact, right, right, right to Heidelberg. So that's that's a case. In yeah, well, and absolutely. And yeah. you know, I once wrote a biography of Thomas Carlyle, who was a Scottish lowland peasant, and he was uh, the Scots took education seriously in a way that the English didn't. For the English, working class people were just. Uh, sort of capital, and I, I, I am not a Marxist, but they were just capitalist cannon fodder. You know, they were there to be put into factories to make money. The Scots always spotted a bright child and educated him, usually him in those days. And Carlyle, at the age of 14 or 15, went to Edinburgh University. But his family was so poor, he had to walk there. It was 73 miles from uh, Ecclefechan to Edinburgh. Uh, and he had to walk back again at the end of term, and he was so poor when he when he was there, he had to he had scholarships, but he had to live off oats uh, because he couldn't afford to eat anything else. Um, but they did at least provide an education, and they, it wasn't done on a class basis in England. It was first of all all to do with class because class and wealth went together. Then the middle classes, as they became more wealthy and new money, who was they were running industry they started to buy their way into the education system. But it was a long time before the wage earners, the people who worked for the rich people, uh, whether they were in service or whether they were um, in, um, in industry, had the money and the means and the opportunity to get into education. Where there are rare examples, H.G. Wells, who will be very, known, very well known to your, your listeners, H.G. Wells was the son of a housemaid and a gardener and he managed eventually to get to a college in London in the 1880s. Uh, but it was a real struggle for him from that background to do it. And he was a highly, naturally articulate, widely read, and he had tremendous intellectual energy, man. And he became a world-famous figure from that background. So there were, it could happen. There were opportunities. 
but they were few and far between. And one of the great triumphs of the Victorians was by the time of the turn of the century, by the time we got into the 20th century, they had tried to make it possible for everyone to have a basic education and for the best to have an opportunity to climb upwards. Well, let's um, get to the Corn Laws, which actually is related to many of the things that we've already talked about. So can you explain the Corn Laws and their repeal in five minutes? I can, I can explain it very in less than five minutes. The Corn Laws oh, right. were brought by Lord Liverpool after the, our victory in the Napoleonic Wars in 1815 because um, the landed interest, who were mainly a Tory, conservative landed interest, but called Tories in those days, who were supporters of Lord Liverpool's government, said that they were making no money from their agricultural land because um, after the end of the Napoleonic Wars, um, free trade or, or, or huge supplies of cereal coming in from Europe, uh, particularly from Eastern Europe, which had not been able to get here during the wars, was undercutting them. Uh, and so uh, Liverpool, in order to keep his political support, imposed tariffs on imported cereals and this made uh, them very expensive, and it meant that the landed interest in Britain could put the price of its cereals up in a sort of cartel arrangement um, that made it very expensive for people to buy bread, but obviously people needed bread, and so they had to make sacrifices and not buy other things in order to buy bread. And it made the Tory landed interest for a while very well off. And by the late 1830s, people were suffering such hardship uh, in England and indeed in Ireland and Scotland uh, that a debate began. The Anti-Corn Law League was founded in 1838, which is the year that my book begins. And uh, the Anti-Corn Law League uh, did what it said on the label. It campaigned for the next eight years until the laws were repealed to have the tariff taken off imported cereals. When it was taken off, uh, the price fell, and uh, people suddenly uh, were able to eat properly again. We warded off famine in Ireland, helped by the fact that there was a very large migration from Ireland to America and to Australia. Uh, and we, but it, it also became clear to people in other industries and trades outside agriculture that if you took tariffs off, um, the other countries lifted their tariffs on your imported goods. And because in those days, Britain made better manufactured goods than probably any other country in the world, we suddenly, in the 18, late 1840s, 50s and 60s, found other markets opening up to us in, in an enormous fashion uh, and making Britain very rich. It was why you know, Birmingham uh, in, the, in the English Midlands became known as the workshop of the world because we were making engineering goods there uh, that were exported all over the world and made a fortune. And we were able to do that because when we exported, other countries knew that they could export to us uh, if they had anything worth exporting without facing tariffs, didn't charge tariffs on our, our exported goods. And therefore, in that golden age of free trade, which really lasted up until 1914, up until the outbreak of the Great War, we became an enormously prosperous country because our manufactured goods tended to be better than the manufactured goods of the countries that bought them. But this is connected to everything else. 
um, the, the corn laws and, and trade. And so this is also part of the rise of the bourgeoisie and of, of Manchester liberalism, which um, is something that uh, Amer- many educated Americans have never heard of and yet is a transatlantic movement such that one of its leaders, his photograph was on Lincoln's, the mantelpiece in Lincoln's study in the White House. Uh, it was one of its most cherished possessions during the war. Um, so could you describe Manchester liberalism and its importance? Um, yeah, I mean, Ma- Manchester liberalism was about uh, free trade and free markets. It was about laissez-faire. Uh, it was about maximizing the economic potential of every individual. I'm not, I didn't know Lincoln had a picture of one of the leaders of that movement on his mantelpiece. But of course, Lincoln's own commitment to abolishing slavery and to having economic reform in, in America was entirely consistent with the views of, of the Manchester liberals. Um, you know, the Manchester liberals, uh, the leaders of whom were two men called John Bright, who was a, a Manchester industrialist, but also uh, a politician. He was a member of parliament and he became a minister. And another MP uh, called William Cobden, who was actually a farmer from Sussex, but was in league with Bright. Um, I mean, Bright engineered uh, the the growth of free trade because Manchester itself, uh, which was mainly a cotton town, uh, but also did had other manufacturing interests, and through the Manchester Ship Canal was linked to Liverpool, and therefore you know, had great interests in exporting and in the uh, shipping trade. Um, made a lot of money out of re- the removal of tariffs. Uh, deregulation, as we would now call it, and um, you know, removing tax tax burdens from uh, from uh, people who were trying to make money. Uh, what Manchester liberalism did was reward entrepreneurs, and by rewarding them, uh, it took people you know out of the workhouse and into employment. Uh, it meant that uh, there were fewer poor people. And it helped create a middle class because once you start running a business like that, you don't just need uh, blue-collar workers who toil in the factories. Uh, You also need white-collar workers. You need back-office staff. You need people to to, to administer your business. So, So there's a demand for educated people who can read and write well. And in those days, <coughs> who had brilliant handwriting because there were no typewriters, um, there were certainly no computers, and so they needed a big clerical staff who could do the job well and neatly and could communicate in good English with customers and with suppliers. So from this, you get a middle class growing. It's also at the time, of course, when the railways are taking off. This is another huge thing in this country, as I know it was in America. And suddenly... You aren't just linking up big cities like London and Birmingham and Manchester with railways, but you've got railways going out into the hinterland of Manchester and London. What now is the London Underground Network, the Tube Network, the subway in London? And suddenly you you have commuters, you have people, middle class people who live maybe seven or eight miles out of the centre of town, too far to walk to work, which is what the working classes did. They all lived in rather grim accommodation in the inner cities, and they could walk to work in five minutes. But the people who were a cut above them, the people who literally put a white collar on their shirt every morning and went into the office and did all the all, all that sort of work, uh, they came in on, on, on steam trains into the centre of Manchester 
and went to their offices. They had a slightly, yeah. they, they had a higher standard of living. They lived in the countryside or they lived in a sort of green suburb of Manchester or Birmingham or London and came into the centre. The people who really made the money, uh, and these are usually second or third generation industrialists whose um, fathers or grandfathers were the entrepreneurs, um, they started building big houses even further out and uh, would come in uh, either in a, on a first-class railway carriage or in a coach. Later in the century, in the 1890s, they'd be driven in a motor car. And um, you know, this is how prosperity works. And this all stemmed from free trade. It all stemmed from the repeal of the Corn Laws. In the 27 years from 1846 to 1873, Britain had economic growth every year. And it only stopped in 1873 because of the onset of the Great Agricultural Depression. And that didn't really affect industry very much, but it certainly affected agriculture. And Britain was still then a very big agricultural country, as indeed it is now. But what, what changed were, under free trade, imports, huge imports of cheap cereals from Canada and the United States because they had started to farm on a sort of prairie basis. And uh, they invented horse-drawn harvesting machines, which later changed into combine harvesters, where they could produce huge quantities of grain and export it around the world far more cheaply than it could be produced in the countries to which they were exporting it. So, large, so by the 1890s, Again, because it's because of free trade and because of a failure to diversify, British agriculture was in a terrible state. Large parts of, of England that relied on arable farming as opposed to cattle farming uh, or livestock farming were had, had square miles of derelict land uh, that had been under the plough 20 years earlier because it was no longer making money. So, you know, there was there were losses and gains. But at the time when agriculture in Britain was declining after 1873. Um, the uh, industrial and bureaucratic businesses in England were growing, the service industries were growing, and the middle class continued to expand. But again, that again all came out of uh, liberalising the Corn Laws, or abolishing the Corn Laws, and allowing everybody to you know, make money from free trade. And, and this in turn, then pushes and expands the franchise to a greater number of male voters? Well, what you had by the 1860s um, were quite a lot of people who were then in their, I suppose, their, their early 20s, late 20s, early 30s, who were the first generation, <coughs> or 20 years earlier, to benefit from the wider availability of education. So you had working men in particular who could read and write and who started to read books like Samuel Smiles's Self-Help, uh, which is a famous text in this regard, but also started to read political pamphlets put out by radicals uh, that told them that, you know, they were just as intelligent now. They were, that they, they had access to discourse, to, to, to pamphlets, to, uh, material that made them think, and that they were entitled to take a place in the national debate. And we'd had a Reform Act in 1832 that had slightly widened the franchise to take in the middle classes. The franchise was then 
dependent on the, the value of your property. So if you either owned or rented a property whose rental value was, I think it was something like £12 a year, you could have the vote. If you, if you lived in something that was poorer than that, you didn't get the vote. And the vote, after huge demonstrations, was extended in 1867 to a large number of urban working men. Of course, no woman got the vote in this country until 1918. But uh, suddenly, a huge army of urban working men had got the vote. And they got it in 1867, and they promptly returned a liberal government led by Gladstone in 1868, the government for six years. And um, that was because that government promised further reforms of education, of access to uh, better jobs. Um, and also, it promised to... Um, uh, begin a reform process in Ireland uh, and uh, that made a tremendous difference uh, to this country but still agricultural workers who all lived in tied cottages and didn't have a rental value of £12 a year, they didn't get the vote they didn't get the vote until 1884 um, but yes over the period uh, of the last 30 years last 35 years of the 19th century more and more men get the vote. And of course, by 1918, all men and most women get the vote in this country. So it not only changes the nature of party politics and causes, in the early 20th century, a Labour Party to rise up, it also means that the parties that do exist in the 19th century, the Liberals and the Tories, have to think more carefully about their policies and have to do things that will attract working-class voters to support them. And so they can no longer have that sort of sectarian politics that the Corn Laws, when they were passed, were a tremendous example of, where it's only the people who've already got money and got land and got property who benefit from what the, the parties do. They now have to share it around more, more equally, and they have to provide reasons for working class people to vote for. Well, the um, second part of the book is called, is, uh, called The Victorian Mind. And I want to focus on three varieties of the Victorian mind as you, as you dissect it. And uh, they would be the godly mind, the doubting mind, and the heroic mind. Um, and I thought of this because Thomas Arnold of rugby, in many ways, is very intimately connected to all three. Uh, he is a clergyman. He is ordained. Uh, he, has, he speaks a great deal. Uh, his students rem remember about evil and good, and he's determined to root it out of the school and to make his uh, students lifelong crusaders against evil. He's also a man of doubt, uh, and some of his students uh, themselves undergo tremendous doubt and become some of the great secular minds of the Victorian age. He's also a hero. Uh, he's a hero in Tom Brown's school days. He's a hero in the first biography that's written just two years after his death. It's a, I, you made me go look it up. It's a tremendous heroic biography. Um, so there are ways in which, uh, as in so many of these things, where Arnold is connected to all three of these things. Yes. I mean, Britain before Queen Victoria, there we, oh, let's start again. People look at the Victorian period in Britain and they regard Victorians as being really straight-laced, stuffy, prim people who are I mean, it's astonishing that the population grew so much, so much because it is. You know, it really is, given what we think of it. Yeah, 
Well, no one talks about sex. Whether they ever did it, you know. It's, um, yeah. <laughs> uh, of course, they were at it like knives. There was not much else to do in the evenings. There was no television to watch. Um, uh, and for some reason, they they knew how to do it as well, uh, which uh, it's amazing they, they ever learned that. Not least because the sexes, <laughs> the upper and middle classes, were brought up entirely separately. There were girls' schools and boys' schools. Even when they invented uh, state schools, um, you could go to Victorian or buildings now, even today, and you'll see the boys' entrance and the girls' entrance. They tried to keep them apart. Um, and it was a very repressed, stuffy, and therefore hypocritical society. But what Dr. Arnold tried to do was to change a society that was left over from Georgian England, which was very licentious, which, uh, where particularly the upper classes and the working classes behaved with no sense of what the middle classes called respectability at all. Um, you know, the working classes tended to father children all over the place without marrying. The upper classes had, you know, men in the upper classes had strings of mistresses. Uh, and Arnold was shocked by this, and he said, no, we have to have a more godly society. And Arnold was a religious fanatic, and he took the view that... Um, society had to live according to the Bible. And, uh, you know, he uh, he drilled this into the boys at rugby. The boys who didn't tend to take any notice, he thrashed them regularly uh, uh, until they they did actually sit up and take notice. And or he expelled them. You, 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 you do, I have to say. You say he didn't thrash as much as his legend would have it, but he, he did tend to ruthlessly expel boys in order to keep the uh, the yeast out of the, the, the loaf. Yeah. He did, and those he thought, but those he thought were redeemable, he thrashed them. I mean, to an extent mm -hmm. that he'd now be arrested for child abuse. Um, yeah. But um, these were different times. But he set an example to all the other public schools and the grammar schools. He wasn't a muscular Christian in the sense that that word is used by Victorians, because muscular Christians, muscular Christians basically believed in having boys every afternoon playing football or rugby or cricket, depending on what time of year it was, so that they came back in at six o'clock even completely exhausted. Um, this stopped them experimenting sexually, either with themselves or with each other. Well, that was the theory. Um, and uh, uh, that was the generation that followed Arnold. But the schools in which muscular Christianity was um, practiced, and it really, its golden age was really from the 1880s to the First World War, um, so that's dealt with in my next book, not in this one. But they were based on Arnold's rugby. They had the classical education. They had the chapel as the centre of, of, of school life. Uh, they turned out a lot of people who ended up as clergymen. There was great emphasis on Bible teaching. There was more emphasis, I mean, there was still emphasis, as Arnold would have had it, on teaching Latin and Greek. But they also started to teach mathematics. They also started to teach um, French. Uh, they also started to teach um, basic sciences. It always took quite a long time, but certainly by the 1880s, 1890s, most schools could do this. And universities, as a result, changed. They started to offer courses in sciences. I mean, the old universities had always offered courses in mathematics, but now schools trained boys particularly to go there to, to learn that. And I mean, Arnold's view was if you sent out boys from schools who were um, schooled in the Bible and taught to be gentlemen 
and taught to behave properly with good manners and thoughtfulness for others, which is again what the Bible says, then you'd have a better society. And to an extent it worked. The tragedy is that a large proportion of people who came up from Arnold-influenced schools with that mindset were slaughtered on the Western Front between 1914 and 1918. You know, if you go to, if you look at the statistics, um, the officer class lost something like 18% of the boys who went out there to fight. 18% of them were killed. It was only about 11% of the non-commissioned officers and uh, private soldiers who were killed. So that, gen that, that sort of generation of high-minded young men who went out with a they were sent out from school with an idea of serving their country, serving those who were less fortunate than themselves, uh, and you know, carrying on the word of God and, and sort of the Christian ethos. Um, by leading from the front in that way, they they were the main casualties of, the, of of a mechanized war when it started. But certainly in 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 late Victorian Britain, Arnold's example um, was the ruling example of most middle-class and upper-middle-class educational establishments. So to get back to the what we what we discussed at the, at the beginning of the conversation, the godly mind is in pursuit of uh, ethical and moral perfection. So, Well, yes. I mean, you know, these boys were also taught that the only perfect being who ever existed was Jesus Christ. So um, they could pursue it, but they knew they'd never attain yes. it. But they, they were all meant to live in a way where you know they could look in the shaving mirror uh, when they're in their twenties when they've left school, and think actually I don't dislike what I see. This of course made a lot of them to be you know into absolute pricks, which is very unfortunate. Uh, and they were very stuffy, stuck-up individuals, but they were by and large good men. They were taught not to be selfish, and one of the things when you read certainly fiction, but also some of the social histories of the period, that often differentiates um, the, the upper class, the people educated at the best schools and from the best families in this country, with people from the rising middle class, are the middle class are very in it for themselves. They are eventually, because you know, this is an era of very low taxation and no welfare state, they are eventually prevailed upon by their social betters to give money to charity, to endow schools, to endow libraries, to endow hospitals, to do good works, because they're told it is their Christian duty. And they get to the stage in their rise-up society where not to engage in acts of philanthropy like that um, is regarded as being rather vulgar. Uh, and I think this happens also in America, from what I know of American society in that period. If you didn't do something philanthropic, then you were not deemed to be a respectable member of society. You were deemed to be so irredeemably selfish. And that was certainly very true in England as well. So, so it wasn't about the pursuit of perfection. Well, it was about the pursuit of perfection. But there was this idea that you would never attain perfection, but you could try to be a good citizen. Is, it, is the pursuit of perfection, to, to, to your mind, is it also is it also wrapped up in perhaps the... Uh, Sort of the uh, the secular mind or the uh, the doubting mind uh, is this? Are these well, people who? Yeah, I mean, look, because Britain is a predominantly Protestant country, and uh, the Church of England 
uh, broke, you know, set itself up as in opposition to the Catholic Church in 1534, having really outlawed Catholicism uh, in this country at the time of the Reformation. Um, they, the, the Protestant work ethic comes really from the idea that you can buy your way into heaven. And uh, the next step on from Protestantism is, of course, secularization. And the, the European mind generally, even in Catholic countries, but certainly in Protestant countries in Europe, is secularized in the 19th century. And people, for social reasons, for the sake of appearances, in a certain stage in society, they go to church every Sunday. They go through the motions of being religious. But their religion really um, has become uh, just a, a form of playing by the rules. Uh, the people who actually believe in God uh, or make themselves believe in God declines rapidly throughout the 19th century and, and more rapidly still throughout the 20th century. Um, so it does go with secularization. And I think there are a lot of intelligent people who say, well, okay, it used to be the case that I would behave well or would try to behave well because um, I was... Uh, godly, I was going to church every Sunday, and I knew what was expected of me. I now no longer do that, or if I do it, I don't believe in it. I'm doing it for the sake of appearances. But I can see that the, that the Christian rules make for a civilized and ordered society, and therefore I should continue to abide by them. And of course, the bigger the middle class gets, the more they realize that they have got to behave in a way that sets a good example to the masses, and you know the masses are still quite mass in in late nineteenth century England. Um, you know there is a the middle class is quite small, the upper class is smaller still, and they want to behave well and to set a good example, because they're afraid if they don't, the people underneath them will cease to respect them and will start to steal from them and um, and behave very badly and try and occupy their property, which you know is to be very generalised about it, is largely what had happened in France in 1789 and came to happen, all of these people would, knew, would know this, uh, came to happen again in Russia in 1917. The French Revolution, by the way, casts a shadow over the entire British 19th century. And the people who do well in Britain uh, and who conform with the social order and who move up the class system and like the institutions that are there and want to aspire to join the institutions that are in, 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 uh, ingrained in the class system. Um, they are terrified of the whole shooting match being turned upside down by something like the French Revolution. And that's why in 1848, when the Chartist movement, which wanted democratization of Britain faster than it was ever, than it was ever going to happen, that's why the, the middle classes are so afraid of the Chartists taking over because they see, in a year where Europe is beset with revolutions in 1848, they are terrified that the social order that they rather like and wish to invest in in this country is about to be turned upside down. And so that's another reason why they behave well towards their social inferiors and set an example to their social inferiors, even without any help from Christianity. They do it because it's in their self-interest to do it. Let's close this out by talking about the heroic mind. As I said, Dr. Arnold is a is a hero. He's a heroic figure. He's one of many 
um, who are all the way from uh, well at the end of your uh, at the end of this with, uh, with General Gordon of Gordon of Khartoum, so in many ways the ultimate uh, hero of this of this period. This brings us back to one of your great biographical subjects, Thomas Carlyle, and the and the and his views on on the hero and the great man of history. Could you expound on that just a, a little bit? Well, Car- Carlyle was um, a figure who's now much derided. And um, it's because he doesn't fit in with either the 20th or the 21st century. The only person on earth today, uh, unfortunately, who seems to chime with Carlylean views is Vladimir Putin, who does seem to believe that might is right. And that was exactly what Carlyle thought. But Carlyle was a man who was deeply attached to the idea of feudalism. And by feudalism, uh, he meant that uh, the great landowners, the, the wealthy people of any community, had, uh, in return for the privileges that they had of enjoying comfort and a high standard of living, had a duty, he never says a Christian duty, he means a social duty, to those less fortunate than themselves to ensure that they were looked after mainly by supplying them with work on their estates. Uh, if they couldn't do that, of ensuring if they um, ended up in the poorhouse that they made some contribution to their, their, their keep there. He didn't believe that any other system was ever going to work. And he used the phrase democracy, which means despair of finding any heroes to govern you because he thought that if there were heroic figures, both at a local and a national level, they would inspire people, and they would inspire them by their example. Uh, He starts off with this in feudalism by looking at Bury St Edmunds, which is a town in the east of England, um, not very far from where I'm talking to you from. And in the 14th century, there was an abbey at Bury. Uh, Its buildings largely still exist, Um, 700 years later and uh, he found the journals which had then just been transcribed from Middle English of a man called Jocelyn de Bracklond uh, who was the abbot of St Edmundsbury uh, 700 years ago and in his uh, journals Jocelyn de Bracklond talks about how in the ordered society that they run in Bury St Edmunds he makes sure that every person in the little town is looked after because they all do something for the abbey. They're either farmers who are farming abbey lands or they're they're craftsmen who are maintaining the abbey buildings uh, or they are members of the servant class and they're looking after the abbot and his powerful friends and they're waiting hand and foot on him Uh, or they're looking after other local magnates. Now, this medieval fantasy Carlyle tries to impose on the 19th century of course, it doesn't work in the 19th century. Um, feudalism has gone forever. You've now got an industrial society. You've got a much bigger population. The population of England in the 14th century was about 2 million. By the time he's writing, it's nearly 20 million. And so you've got a large mass of people who are, by definition, much harder to look after, even if you didn't have an industrial society. And so he looks, he wrote, a, he gave a series of lectures in 1840 called On Heroes and Hero Worship and the Heroic in History. And he chose people um, uh, that he thought were uh, 
had been equipped to set an example to others. I mean, the one who sticks in my mind most of all is Martin Luther. He regards Martin Luther, with some justification, as one of the most heroic figures in history. This man who had a genuine belief in the corruptness of the Roman Catholic Church and who despised the fact that in order to build St. Peter's in Rome, the church had sent men all around Europe selling indulgences uh, to people to guarantee, in return for a large amount of money, to guarantee their place in heaven. And he found this disgusting. Uh, and he found the superstition of the Catholic Church, as he saw it, disgusting. And you know, he nailed his theses to the door of Wittenberg Church in 1517 and took on the Catholic Church at the Diet of Worms and was absolutely determined to make his case and dared the Catholic Church to persecute him. And of course, they dared not do it because he was such a powerful figure. Now, this man is the ultimate hero for Carlyle, not just because Carlyle believes in the Reformed religion, because actually he only believes in it to an extent. He's actually a, he's actually a post-Christian in many ways. He is a theist. He believes, as he says in another one of his writings, that God is immanent in everything. He's, God is present in everything. And he doesn't necessarily believe in the Christian miracles. But he says, you know, what society is lacking is example. You know, we are we have become a decadent and demoralized people. You know, it's a theme that's actually run through the last two hundred years of Western history. We've we've become a decadent, demoralized people, and we need to have heroic examples again. And yes, after Carlyle's death, you get um, you get General Gordon, and, and and there are others who do things throughout the Victorian era in, in an age before welfareism who are genuinely heroic. I mean, Florence Nightingale uh, is heroic in the way that as a woman, she goes out to the Crimea in 1854 and saves the lives of countless people by telling nurses to be more responsible in stopping infection. It isn't the bullets of the Russian army that are shooting, that are killing people in the Crimea in the 1850s. It's most people, most of the soldiers there who get wounded well, they don't get if they get a disease and they die of it because nursing is so primitive. So she's a visionary, and this is what this is what the Victorians are good at. They're good at finding visionaries. They're good at finding people who, you know, see look at an impossible project and complete it, and who change things. And again, you know, Doctor Arnold was one of those people. Um, uh, you know, th there are uh, the man who builds the Albert Hall. Uh, is a man who has a vision that not only not only can we transform uh, this part of London to have a great concert hall, but we can also use resources from the Great Exhibition of 1851 to build um, museums and to you know, enhance the civilising process. And so if you go to London now, go to South Kensington, and you see the Natural History Museum, the Science Museum, the Victoria and Albert Museum, uh, Imperial College London, the Royal College of Music, the Albert Hall, all these great late Victorian institutions were the vision, first of all, of Prince Albert, and, and then of various people who followed in his wake, who said, let's fulfil Prince Albert's vision. So to the Victorians, nothing was impossible. Uh, although, you know, it may have seemed impossible. And that was that was the Carlylean spirit. It was you know, find your heroes, they will lead you. 
And in an age when the state counted for very little, the state was not an interventionist machine. The state was just there to provide law and order and to raise the taxes to keep societies in order. Um, everything else was up to the individual. And the hero was the ultimate individual. He, or in Florence Nightingale's case, she, uh, did that job. And, um, you know, he, he, he loves Robert Peel. Peel is one of his heroes because he repealed the Corn Laws in the face of opposition from his own party. What Peel did was say to his own party, well, if you, as representatives of the Tory landed interest, don't want to repeal the Corn Laws, don't want to stop the Irish starving, and don't want to stop you know, suppressing our industry in this country because of tariffs, I'll ask the other party to do it. And the, the Whigs and the Liberals, who were the opposition, said, yeah, we'll come in on that. And they were, Peel got just enough Conservative votes to get this through Parliament. And he did this in the face of serious opposition from the whole British establishment. And so to Carlyle, he became a hero. And Carlyle said, you know, when Peel was thrown from his horse four years later on, on a morning ride in Hyde Park and hit his head and died a few days later, he regarded it as the great tragedy of the 19th century. And you know, he had an idea of proper government. His ultimate hero, really, other than Luther, was Oliver Cromwell. Uh, because Oliver Cromwell, he felt, had seen corruption and an absence of godliness in Britain in the 1640s. Uh, and had very determinedly engineered his way to become Lord Protector and to try and sort it out, uh, even if it took you know, cutting the head of the king off. So it's that mentality that is very much present in late Victorian England. And again, it tends to, it, it tends to last right through to the First World War. There's obviously there are great individual elements of heroism in the First World War, but it's only from the First World War onwards that the state in Britain starts to take over. And the need for heroes, as it were, the state decides, is much less than it was. But certainly what makes uh, Victorian England um, the, the midwife, if you like, of the modern world is all those heroic people who are determined to, to make radical change in this country and to improve standard of living and to improve institutions. Well, we've got to wrap things up, but before we do, there's one thing I want to, I want to hear you on, and that is the is the meritocracy. You have a wonderful chapter, Inventing the Meritocracy. The meritocracy in, well, let's leave Britain out of this, but in, in the States right now, there's uh, both the left and the populist right really hate the meritocracy. And those people who find themselves in the meritocracy want to believe they're in the meritocracy are very much in favor of it. I think there's less and less. Um, uh, what I think neither the people who are against the meritocracy have, have no idea of what things were like prior to the meritocracy. They have no idea of what the meritocracy repaired. Uh, and they have no idea of the, you know, get to back to Joseph Wright again, the, the cinders that were spat out by the great, you know, by society in the past, burnt up, spat out, and left beside the, the side of the road, which were recovered, uh, were saved from the burning. Um, could you so could you speak to the great change of the meritocracy in, in, in this period of which you discuss? You make a very good point, Al. I mean, you know, people who don't believe in meritocracy frankly don't believe in opportunity. And I think what they resent right. is that not everybody is of equal ability. 
Well, I'm sorry, you know, life is like that. Um, I'm somebody who loves music and I'm hopeless at playing musical instruments. I therefore had to write off my desire uh, to be a concert pianist. Um, so bad things happen. And, um, you know, some, uh, I'm, I'd love to have been a scientist. I'm, I was useless at school at science. Luckily, I was good at other things. And, um, you know, we just have to accept that we're all different. Uh, some of us are good at some things, some of us are good at others. And that at different times, society will have a demand and a need for people with certain talents. Now, what would be a very unfair society, and it was the society that existed in this country and in most other Western countries until the 20th century, um, is if people of real talent are not allowed to develop that talent through educational opportunities and are then not allowed to go into certain jobs um, because either they're barred for reasons of class or race or gender. And in a proper meritocracy, the only thing you're interested in is talent. You don't care whether someone is a man or a woman or define themselves in some other way um, from that. You don't care whether uh, somebody is black, white, or any other color. You don't care what religion they have. You don't care which football team they support. All you care about is can they do this particular job better than somebody else? Because in an ideal society, it will be the people who can do uh, the job better than anybody else, whatever that job happens to be, who deserve to flourish. Because in the end, um, they, will they will advance society, they will advance prosperity. Um, you know, as, as a, a political friend of mine famously said in this country about 50 years ago, you don't tax a loss, you only tax a profit. We're all in this together. We all need other people to succeed, even if we can't succeed ourselves. And yes, it is rough, but not everybody can live in a big house. Not everybody can earn a great deal of money. Not everybody can drive a really smart car. But in, a, at the, in the end, society needs people who can. And what would be cruel is if any society said, right, we are going to eliminate from the competition certain people, whether it's because of their earnings or their parents' earnings, or because they are black or Jewish or female, you're going to eliminate them. That's unfair. You say to everybody, we're going to provide educational opportunities, both at school level and university level, and you know, the devil will take the hindmost in the end. You all have an equal, it's a level playing field, you all have a chance. If you either don't take that chance, or you take the chance and you don't maximise your performance in it, then you know you will not get as far as other people who do. I think it's also important for societies, and my country now actually is very good at doing this, to offer people who have are late developers or who have not been rational enough to to make the most of their education opportunities in their teens to say in your thirties and forties come back and do another degree, come back and retrain. Um, and I think that's crucial for society. You've you've not only got to allow people opportunities, you've got to allow people new, you know, fresh chances. If they do mess up, you've got to say, well, come back in 15 years' time and do it again. When you've realised, you know, you've, you've got the incentive uh, more mapped out in your mind about why you have to do it. And the Victorians started this process in Britain 
They said, we will provide more school places. We will provide more universities. They started to found universities that were outside the old universities who did have a very, in those days, class-based um, approach to it, who wouldn't allow women in to take degrees. Um, in the end, the, the, the recognition that we had this tremendous pool of human resource that had to be developed, and we couldn't allow old prejudices and you know foolish old bigotries to stand in the way of of developing it. That was the true progressive nature of the Victorians, and it worked in this country. It worked right through the twentieth century. You know, once opportunities were granted in in limited ways to people, more people asked for them, and more people were qualified to take them. Now, I hope I live in a country where the only limit on someone's uh, ability to get to the top is how hard he or she is prepared to work. My guest today has been Simon Heffer. He's the author of High Minds, The Victorians and the Birth of Modern Britain. Simon Heffer, thank you so much for being part of Historically Thinking. Al, thank you very much for having me. Just a brief reminder, if you're listening to Historically Thinking on the website, that's great. But for your convenience, you can also find us on Apple Podcasts, Google Podcasts, Spotify, Amazon Music, Pandora, Stitcher, iHeartRadio, GeoSavin, Podchaser, TuneIn, Deezer, and there are more. In fact, wherever there are podcasts, there you can find Historically Thinking. While great reviews are wonderful on whatever platform you want to write them, the best possible review that you can give us is to forward the podcast to a friend you think will find it interesting. You can also follow us on Twitter at hist underscore think or on Facebook.